This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. of sweat form on your palms. Everything shakes. One team member prays and cries. Another fights the ropes binding his arms. Panic rattles from one to the next like a live animal fighting suffocation. You hold one hand still with the other, uncertain if it's the frostbitten cold or fear. You scan their faces. Friend or foe. Identity wavers like gas fumes in the air, vaguely visible and suspect. There's a crash. The lights go out. And someone shouts, who goes there? In episode three, we ask you to look to the skies and question your neighbors as we cover three adaptations of a classic story. As always, I'm Rob Basercha, and joining me are Devin Shepard and David B. Jacobs, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? Hey! Oh my gosh, I'm so stoked for this one. Ready to get my sci-fi hat on. I am Devin Shepard. I am a writer, producer, and director. Um, You can most recently see my work through the horror film A Nightmare Wakes, currently on Shudder, and I also directed and produced the horror sci-fi podcast Cryptids, available wherever you get your podcasts. And this is David B. Jacobs. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, and horror addict. If you're listening to this when it first drops, my quarantine slasher short, One Last Call, written and produced by our own Devin Shepard, will be available this weekend through Crimson Screen Film Festival. It'll be all virtual. We'll post links on our social media. It's going to be a good time. Yes, I'll definitely have to check that out. As always, I'm Rob Basertia, owner and runner of Whimsy Productions LLC and also Local 52 Grip. Before we get started, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Our account is Pod. So today we have some really cool movies to talk about, three different movies, all kind of remakes or prequels of the other with some like morphology mixed in. So why don't we start off with uh, Devin, why don't you get us going on our first film? Sure. Our first film is called The Thing from Another World from 1951, directed by Christian Nyby and also debatedly directed by Howard Hawks, written by Charles Lederer. A U.S. Air Force crew is requested to travel to the North Pole, where a group of scientists claim to have seen a plane crash in an unusual manner. At the crash site, the team discovers a flying saucer and the body of its pilot frozen under the ice. They bring the body back to their remote outpost to examine it. When the body is accidentally unfrozen, the pilot comes to life and the team must defend themselves against the thing from another world. So I got to ask you guys, what are your initial thoughts on this movie? Uh, To me, it felt a little bit dated and uh, maybe the beginning took a little while to get going. There was a lot of padding, but I know you two liked it, I think more than I did. Yeah, I love this movie, but I am like the perfect audience for it is that I love all these classic old films. I love all the Twilight Zone episodes. Um, I'm obviously a huge radio drama fan. So this was felt like very reminiscent of the radio drama times like Suspense and Lights Out and Dimension X. And I was like, yes, this is my shit. I like how they do overlapping dialogue, which is, it's like a really weird specific thing to bring up. But in my film knowledge, which I I think I'm knowledgeable about film, I don't know, but I thought overlapping dialogue wasn't a thing until Robert Altman in the 60s and 70s. And seeing it in this old 50s movie, I'm like, what the fuck? This is great. Uh, It's just a really fun kind of cheesy movie i agree it's a bit dated i don't think it's as good as some of the other 50 sci-fi horrors like invasion of body snatchers or day the earth stood still i i like those movies better uh but this is still fun yeah i love how you mentioned that it it felt like it was a radio drama with the overlapping dialogue because i think the two like lead into one another because you can almost just listen to this movie at a lot of points and it's really fun i noticed the dialogue's super corky and all the characters are over the top. Captain Patrick Hendry in particular. Did you guys enjoy his banter with the female lead? 
so much. What is her name? <laughs> um, yeah, Nikki Nicholson is the character. Do you enjoy that banter? Yes, yeah. So much. <laughs> there, there's a part where he says, uh, you can tie me up if you want to, because presumably they went out on a date in, in another Arctic installation or something. He got too drunk and she got upset with him and she left. But she thought it was just funny what happened. It wasn't like he wasn't like a total creep. He just got drunk and got sloppy. So she bailed. I interpret that as a surprisingly sex positive BDSM in like the 1950s. Yes, and I wouldn't say just BDSM as much so as just like, oh, this is a woman who knows what she wants and is allowed to say what she wants sexually. Like, I have never seen that in another 1950s movie. That was awesome. I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to say that there aren't strong women in 1950s movies, but that's like, not what I said. The sexual, Hold on. In, that's the not sexual, what I said. No, no, I'm going with you, but the sexual, that's just for clarity for the audience. I understand you're going in the specific <laughs> direction of the innuendo of like sexual domination. Wait. in a 1950s movie is very strange. I also didn't say domination though. Hold on, hold on, no, no, no. I said, she is a woman who knows what she wants. <laughs> I said domination. I, I think that is absolutely, and they're not allowed to say that because it's 1951, but that's <laughs> the implication. I know. Uh, you know what was really strange? Um, when I first saw this, I wondered why they had a flamethrower, right? Mm. Uh, wait, did they have a flamethrower on this one? No. Not in the original, no. No. Oh, they threw gasoline on him. Yeah. Which is definitely the best scene in the movie. Oh my God, that scene, <laughs> they just like light up the whole room on fire and they have the stuntman just totally on fire running through the, the set. And I'm like, how the hell did they do this in 1951? This seemed so incredibly unsafe. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't imagine them trying to do that today. And that's why it looks so good because it is so incredibly unsafe. I feel like they, they torched the entire set and they had the guy running around from multiple camera angles. They probably lit him on fire more than once, I would think. Yeah, and they had like five of the actors in the same room as this guy while everything's just like up in flames, literally. Because that's not fake fire. <laughs> it looks so fucking cool, too. I love that part. God, it actually, speaking of the look of the movie, I don't think it's a very good looking movie aside from that one scene. The rest mm. of the movie looks pretty subpar. I think even by 50 standards. What do you mean by 50 standards? 50s movies usually have better cinematography than modern movies. Uh, I, I disagree for B movies, but they're, they're, it's really hard lighting and there's a lot of harsh shadows on everyone. Um, there's a yeah. lot of hot spots. The set itself doesn't look very good. It's definitely trying to look like the film noir movies. And I, I, I think it's it's it, it, it doesn't look as good as them. Uh, it's well blocked though. Like the, I, I, I like when they have, big scenes with all the characters and they can just hold it and it's almost like a stage play in those parts but i really like that <laughs> it, it does yeah. have a stage play vibe for sure um the way they all pop in the way that conversations are almost broken up so more characters can finish each other's sentences yeah and i think this was definitely before like the natural movie really became a, a big thing and i think the main reason why it felt like a play to me was because of the way that it was written was every single line in the film had something to do with the theme, had some comment on the government, had some comment on science, had some comment on like the military, on like man as a as a being. Um, it was like such a smart, smart script. And that is what I loved most about this. I know you have different thoughts, Rob, so I'm so curious. I, I think it's uh the script definitely just has an agenda. Yes. I, I don't I don't know how smart I think it is because the characterization of, of scientists in this movie is like laughable. Well, and I think that's the point too. A lot of what it talks about is like the classic sci-fi themes of what is what are the morals of science? What are the morals of scientists? Should they be playing around with this stuff? Um, whether it be, you know, like the human genome, whether it be uh, going into outer space. I mean, this was written right after um, Hiroshima is what I read. But they mentioned the splitting of the atom and asking themselves whether or not it was right for scientists to do that. And I and throughout the entire movie, they're they're questioning, you know, what is right for humans to be doing? What is right for scientists to be doing? Should we be doing any of this at all? What 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 are weapons? Yeah, I also got large atom bomb vibes from this movie. It's a common theme in this era that a lot of the sci-fi movies were dealing with radioactivity and whatnot. Mm. Um, 
we, we had just gotten to a point where scientists achieved the ability to literally blow up entire freaking cities. Mm -hmm. uh, science is a destructive force. The last line of the movie is keep looking, keep watching the skies. And that made me think of two things. The first was Devin's podcast, Cryptids. <laughs> and the second was the atom bomb that you've got to be looking the skies because a bomb is going to drop and kill all of us. But I also think that the movie's response to that is, uh, we gotta fight back. It 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 kind of is a bit of military propaganda that it's like, oh, the scientists don't have an answer. They're trying to make nice with this monster. That's terrible. Do not make nice with it. It cannot be trusted. We have to fight these things. It's completely at odds with the initial story, which was written in 38. I mean, that's before the U.S. even entered World War II. So this idea of nuclear weapons was like purely theoretical back then. Um, and the story by John W. Campbell, by the title of Who Goes There, ended on a completely progressive pro-science note in that they, they, beat, they beat the alien and then they get like rocket technology from it and all this other cool stuff. It's mm -hmm. very progressive, what? very optimistic. Yeah, yeah. Well, well they, they take the spaceship. Actually, they blow up the spaceship by accident, but they, they get a lot of technology from the monster. That doesn't happen in this one. In fact, they destroy everything. And right. uh, scientists are made out to just be like these tunnel vision, completely anti-humanitarian, purely uh, knowledge-based individuals. But I think they question like what is humanitarian and what are humans. Um, and I think that's something that we'll see throughout all of the film's adaptations is is questioning the volatility of man. And I'm curious, Rob, because you, you read the novel. I don't know if David and I finished the whole thing. But um, when the doctor, the scientist, is talking about the thing it says its development was not handicapped by emotional or sexual factors saying that humans are handicapped by our emotions and our sexual appetites and i think that's what types into the female character and why i liked her so much in this movie is because yes she was a representation of um sexuality and and man's um relationship with sexuality but i think in a way she also owned that herself and i think with that also showed that like men and women are in equal playing fields because we're both human and we both have these sexual and emotional needs. That is interesting. But I think that's something talking about, you know, the weakness of man is something that all three of these films do. Um, and they all do it very differently. They do. Uh, and in this, this one's so silly. Um, we should talk about how they release the monster in this one. The guy literally puts an electric blanket on top of an ice cube. <laughs> Uh, the monster's stuck in the ice and he's like, oh, gross. And puts the electric blanket, which is on, on top of it and lets it go. And It's I, and, so simple. And I think Ca Captain Patrick notices that's what happened and just kind of like shrugs and is like, let's go on with it. There's this kind of like, you know, just marching forward um, personality about the military in this one, how they can just like trump over their mistakes. They're like, oh, whatever, just human folly. Exactly. <laughs> it's Arthur Carrington. Dr. Arthur Carrington, I think, is the scientist who at the yes. end just gets bitch slapped to, to death by the uh, human carrot. Because how could you try to make peace with it? It's a carrot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After it strings up his friends and drains their blood. Um... Uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, uh, this version of the movie makes the thing very much like it's a, a plant form. So they, they reference it as though it is a carrot. Uh, the, the, my favorite line in the movie, the guy says, uh, an intellectual carrot, the mind boggles. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. This, this movie's like a gold mine of quotes, man. I wrote down so many. Yeah. See, okay. Even Rob admitted so many great one-liners. I like <laughs> this movie. It's just my least favorite. Well, I don't even know if it's my least favorite of the three. Um, what, no read some, way. read some one-liners, one-liners for us, Devin. What else we got? What else we got? Only science can conquer him. All other weapons will be powerless. Except for the circuit board. <laughs> oh, here, here's the A-bomb one. Nothing counts except our thinking. We fought our way into nature. We split the atom. Wow. That's a cool line. Do you want me to keep going? I wrote down so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep yeah. Going. <laughs> Knowledge is more important than life. We've only one excuse for existing. To think to find out, to learn. Are all these quotes from the scientist? 
Yes. It's actually at odds with the theme of the movie that we should listen to the military. They have our best interests at heart and the scientists who are going against them. Those are the ones we got to be worried about. The journalist is my favorite character, by the way. Is he your favorite character? The, the journalist? He's so ridiculous and over the top and I love him. He's so over the top and everyone really listens to everything <laughs> he says. They, they like give him the time of day. And he's such an idiot. <laughs> Which is really funny. <laughs> he like does not understand how aliens work. The back and forth of him, like, freedom of speech and Captain Patrick, like, no. It's just, he's just like, oh, darn it. Like, dude, he, you're a journalist. You should be, like, flipping out. <laughs> like, oh, God. Gosh, so darn it. Censored level. again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one, one final thing, guys. Uh, did you like the way the monster looked? I, I, I like the guy in a suit. It's fine. I gotta tell you. I like the guy in the suit. When they lit him on fire, it looked amazing um the the plant seed pods looked pretty terrible to me that whole part was you know i mean i, I like that they drank blood or whatever it reminded me of like day of the treffits but again like day of the treffits is a better movie let's pause right here to hear about another creepy podcast on the paranormality network and then we'll be right back to talk about our second film hey guys this is eric and jessica carrier the hosts of the prairie land paranormal podcast if you're looking for a show that explores all things paranormal, with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts, check out our show online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. On to our next film, which I must say is probably one of my favorite horror movies. Uh, actually, one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's the director's best movie. Nah. Halloween. Anyway, so David's going to give us the rundown on probably the best movie of the 80s. Go ahead. If you've seen any of these movies, it's this one. 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell and Keith David, with effects done by Rob Bottin. We have 12 men in an Antarctic base who stumble upon a dog that is not a dog, or even a cadaver dog. Rather, it is a shape-shifting monster from outer space that can assimilate its devouries transforming into and becoming them so that none of the men can know who to trust. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, again, what are your initial thoughts? Kurt Russell's a fucking babe. <laughs> I, like, this movie is so hard for me to watch because I just have to cross my legs the entire time. Awesome. I think John Carpenter <laughs> felt the same way. He cast him in everything he ever did. <laughs> he, he has a very cute cowboy hat. I don't understand the hat. I wanted to say to agree with you, Rob. I think this is one of Carpenter's better films. There are some scenes in here where it just I want to study the scene because it 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 shows such great, great directing and such great knowledge of tension. Um, I, I think he ma he masters it so well in this movie. I couldn't agree more. There's also a lot of very subtle movements in the characters and the blocking that I noticed a lot in the second viewing. Wait, this was only your second viewing? Second viewing this week. <laughs> okay, it was my third viewing. Same. Oh, speaking of lines, this movie has the best lines of all. Give us a few. Now I'll show you what I already know. Yes. Oh, so good. I'll kill you if you do that, child. And he goes, uh, I don't care. And then he, he cocks the gun back and he goes, I guess you mean it. Oh, and then Clark dies. I was so sad. Justice for Windows too, man. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find a time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this freaking couch <laughs> gary's a great character too i i love how gary yeah. is so obviously in over his head i think he actually has one of the most interesting decisions in the movie which is when uh he's not a thing but there is very good reason for everyone to suspect he is and he recognizes that and willingly surrenders captainship and i think that is such a cool way to go about it and he's still pissed off the whole time but he's like so yeah, I get it. You think it's me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th that's a really good point. And it really shows that his character is consistent. Um, I like how in the beginning when he shoots the Norwegian in the head, and you can tell that he had never killed anyone before, and he really felt guilty about it immediately. That's so interesting because I didn't notice that, Rob. Do you think that's why he was so willing to give up the gun and the leadership was because he was feeling guilty for killing somebody? Uh, no, I don't think it was directly for feeling guilty that he killed somebody, but I think it showed that he wasn't the type of guy to kill people and just move on like McReady was. Because McReady, uh, you know, he shoots Clark 
And even after he finds out that Clark wasn't a thing, he's just like, he just justifies it by we're trying to survive, you know, and Clark was trying to stab him. I, I think McGrady feels guilty about it. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. He probably didn't want to kill Clark. Clark was probably his friend, but he doesn't allow his emotions to get in the way of his actions. And we never see those emotional moments in this movie, I feel. And that was like my issue with it, I think, was they didn't react to anything. They literally find this alien and then there is no reaction. I'm like, you you guys. And they're so quick to say that it's an alien too. And it was just like. There's a lot of reaction, but it's all very subtle. And they do that on purpose to keep the tone consistent. If the people are freaking out and having all these big meltdowns and screaming from the get-go, then you're going to ruin the crescendo of the movie building up to the end when they are freaking out and screaming at each other. But then that doesn't make them realistic. Yeah, but I think it is. But there's also the entire movie is kind of like covered in this subdued tone of like these people are frustrated. They've been stuck in the Arctic for weeks on end. They find a flying saucer. And in The Thing from Another World in 1951, they find a flying saucer and they're like, oh my god, it's a flying saucer. We just found aliens from outer space. This is amazing. This changes everything. Like, in, in the real world, we a, a machine goes bloop, and everyone's like, oh my god, it's aliens. They're aliens. We found aliens. That's that's a real thing. That's the wow signal. Look it up. The, the reaction is fear and an extreme fear. They're all in shock. They feel like they're in over their head. They've lost communication with everyone. At the same point, there would be at least a moment where they'd be like, yo, we just found proof of alien life. This is pretty crazy. <laughs> I feel like that moment happens a bunch of times. What about when Childs is like flipping out and, and yelling and he's like, He's like, Blair, do you buy any of this? This is nonsense. And Palmer's like, dude, it's always been like this. Because Palmer's an awesome character. Speaking of, who do you think is a thing in the end of the movie? Uh, well, You have the final scene. Uh, you've got McReady and Childs. They're sitting there and they're both like, well, if you're the thing, I'm going to die. And the other one's like, well, if you're the thing, I'm going to die. We- I think McReady has to be one of them. His relationship with alcohol is very well documented throughout the entire film. And in this moment, it's the only time that he shares a bottle with anybody, which is so out of character for him. And like, Hmm. yeah, it could be because he just went through a very harrowing experience. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't I don't think he would ever share just a little bit of his alcohol that is left while he's dying. It's interesting. That's really interesting. But I I don't think he gave the bottle to Childs. I think uh, Childs had his own bottle. No, McReady passed the bottle. Did he? But I think there's a theory that that bottle is actually full of gasoline. Oh, come on. Why? Because then he laughs after Childs drinks, because apparently that's supposed to be like, Childs is a thing because he drank the gasoline and didn't notice. McReady's like, <laughs> But where's the proof to that? That's just people spewing, like, what, what? Just because they want it to be gasoline, so they say it's gasoline. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I'm pretty sure that in the initially Childs was meant to be the thing. I mean, one, we don't know where Childs is in the in the climax of the film when McCready right. kills the biggest thing that we saw. Two, we don't see his breath. There's a theory that I think John Carpenter might have uh, supported himself that purposely you can't see Child's breath when he's talking because the thing creatures don't need to breathe, which actually doesn't make any sense because I think if they replicate a person perfectly, then they do kind of breathe. It's probably capable of breathing, but doesn't need to. This is why we cannot answer this question correctly, because following this movie, there was a comic book series that came out. In the comic book series, neither one of them was a thing, but one of the bodies wasn't burned and the thing comes out, right? Later on in like the second issue or something, uh, Childs ends up in like a submarine or something and then he becomes a thing. But at the end of it, neither one of them are things. But in the video game sequel, if memory serves, it's going back like 15 years, McReady is the thing. Just to throw you off, and Childs freezes to death. I'm gonna pitch in my theory. Um, I don't. So regarding the breath thing first, because it is very clearly intended by Carpenter. Uh, he failed that completely. Childs is definitely breathing that scene. I just watched a movie. You can see his breath. It's not as pronounced as McReady's, but you can definitely see Childs' breath. He is breathing. I also don't think McReady can be a thing because I just don't think the timeline works out for it. It takes a while to assimilate someone. It takes like at least an hour maybe, and uh, it's not implied to have been that long since the station blew up. I don't think McReady is a thing either. I think neither of them are a thing. I think Mm -hmm. they're both human. Uh, They actually did kill it, probably. Maybe not. I don't know. But they'll never trust each other. 
So they're just going to sit there and freeze to death because each one expects the other to kill them. Yeah, I love that so much. And, it, and it, But it, it does bring me back to like the sharing of the bottle too. It's like they're, they're never going to trust each other, yet they're sharing this flask. And it's such an interesting image to end on of two people not trusting one another and bonding over that untrust. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do you think the movie is better or worse or interesting does it have any really bearing that there's no women in this movie okay here's here's my thing about this um i i think why aren't like my question is why aren't there and the answer like people have asked this before and the screenwriter has said that um he finds it annoying that there's obligatory love scenes in horror movies they interrupt the action and so in an indirect way he's saying if i put women in this movie there has to be a love scene. And that angers me so much because women like aren't just sexual objects. They aren't just like characters f- to be there for like romance and romantic interest. Like they can be scientists. They can be anything we want them to be. There doesn't have to be romance in the movie. They can just be freaking characters. <laughs> okay. With that explanation, yeah. I understand you. But I also think that it realistically adds to the frustration of the other characters. I think if there are women, no, no, it absolutely does. If you had a bunch of guys hanging out in a news station forever, there would be a lot of flirtation and something with the female uh, workers there. Like there would absolutely have to be. You think the movie Alien is unrealistic because there's no flirtation? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I don't think that the same type of frustration is there in Alien as there is here. I don't see as much frustration i see frustration from beginning to end on with every single character their frustration is not a sexual frustration though are you saying there'll be less frustration if a woman's there because then they would have sex no not because then they would have (laughs) sex but uh, i think it just adds a that would take away from uh, one layer of frustration it wouldn't necessarily make the movie worse or better i don't think but I think it's not realistic that there's no women there. Exactly. Women are scientists. There are scientists who are women. Why are there no women here? This is not an army base. It's scientists. It's researchers. There would be women. Yeah, there were two women in the 1951 one. They could have put one in this one. And there's two women in the 2011 movie as well. And there's yeah. no and there's no flirtation in that one either. No. I think it's like not realistic or realistic. I think that it's just... It's so unrealistic. And it amplifies a stereotype because you think this is realistic. So it adds a stereotype that women aren't scientists. I think I think the issue here is really just that the screenwriter, Bill Lancaster, said, I don't want women in this movie essentially because they will be seen as a sexual object. And I think like that's the issue, that he wasn't able to write them without any romantic interest, without any sexuality. I understand that. Um, and maybe it could have been done better with, with female characters, but without any kind of romantic angle. Yeah. I, I think the 2011 one does it well, though. Uh, well, so <laughs> we're going on to our next movie. And like we said, it's in 2011. And the plot is a paleontologist, Kate Lloyd, is recruited to join a team of researchers in a remote section of the Arctic when a frozen specimen breaks from the ice and team members turn up dead or worse and a mystery unfolds where they must blame each other and the lines between friend and flow are blurred. This is obviously the 2011 reboot prequel, also called The Thing for the reason that they couldn't come up with a good tagline, <laughs> which uh, that's the actual reason, which I think is indicative of most of the problems with this movie, which is where there, there were obviously good solutions to the problems that it had, but they just couldn't come to terms with making them happen. No, it's because the studio took over and the studio thinks that it can be creative. I like This is just like such a classic example of how studios fuck over horror movies, especially during this time. I had, I'm so angry <laughs> with this film. Yeah, so, so the story is that um, they focus tested the movie and they had all these amazing practical effects Uh, The practical effects were created for this movie by a creature effects department called Amalgamated Dynamics or Studio ADI, and they had completed the entire movie with practical effects that were augmented by CG, which is what they do in really good effects-based movies like The Hollow. 
Unfortunately, the focus group said they didn't like the movie. And for whatever reason, the effects were blamed and also the ending, which was quite different. So what they did is the studio went in, made them reshoot the entire ending and replaced all the practical effects with much lesser CGI effects. Now, if you guys want, so you can go on YouTube and you can see some BTS footage of the effects, which look pretty good. I mean, you can tell they're not totally finished, but they look really cool. And I wonder if that's why the studio thought that, because the effects were not made to be completely practical. There was intended to be a CGI enhancement. Like you can even see in some of the effects, they have a green screen behind it as they're rolling along so they can remove things. And I wonder if it's because the effects weren't finished, finished. So maybe they looked and they thought, oh, practical is stupid. And then they replaced the entire thing, which is like not correct. I, I, th I think in the modern era, when you do mostly practical effects and then you CG to enhance it, those look the best. Those yeah. are great. Like Brightburn did that really well. That's the only thing that Brightburn did really well was its effects look freaking great. <laughs> uh, I noticed a few things were off about the effects and why they look so fake, but it's not the effects themselves that are so bad. It's that the lighting does not exactly match up between the creatures mm -hmm. and the environment and the other characters. The best example of this is when uh, the one really disgusting creature melts onto uh, that other character's face. Right. And it's supposed mm -hmm. to be the monster they find in the original one or the first remake where its face is split in two. Even though that monster is a one face splitting in two, this is two faces morphing together, which mm -hmm. I think is fine with me. I don't mind those like minor details. But you don't see the shadow of the CG character creature on top of the other guy's face. And you're not going to point that out specifically when you're watching it, but your eyes are going to subconsciously tell you that this image does not look correct. Mm. Yeah, it looks like a video game. The Uncanny Valley is definitely a thing in this, and that's what really bothered me. Like the big bad thing at the end, they had to put a face on it. Why? I have no idea. It looks <laughs> terrible. Who wants to watch a CGI face? You can never nail it. It never looks realistic. It never looks evil enough. It's just make make it. It's a thing. It can morph into anything. Why does it still have to have a human face on right now? It makes no sense. Yeah. Well, in the original ending, it was actually the monster that more closely resembled the monster in the original story. And it was actually one of the old specimens that got out. So she was supposed to go into the ship at the end and then find all these alien specimens. Because the idea was that it was a ship that was kind of like a, a zoo collection and it had accidentally nabbed the creature that was one of the things. And then it escaped. So that the, the monster they found in the ice was actually the, I think the alien or maybe the specimen that was kept on the ship and it escaped. Right. It's like the thing is not even the pilot of that ship. Like it's not even right. the species that came to Earth. It is something else that came with them. That would have been cool. That would have been adding something to the story by doing this reboot. By taking that away, then we just have a pure reboot. You're right. You're right. That's my headcanon anyway. My least favorite part about this whole entire thing was when they... <laughs> She goes onto the ship and she sees this huge pixelated CGI column that is never talked about. We have no idea what it does. We don't know. <laughs> like the, the design of it is never seen anywhere else in the entire movie. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And then thank God Rob sent over that video that explained like the original ending of the film. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was just CGI to cover up something uh, that was in the original ending. They literally just built a column to cover up their mistakes like that's how bad they they redid this movie i know it yeah really is the best example of a studio gutting all originality out of a movie Ugh, it hurts it hurts so much and it was barely original to begin with <laughs> and they just took out the little bit it had <laughs> i know yeah they just stripped of everything interesting so the scientist in this movie when the thing eats a human being he calls the sack that it's in and and uh, um a yonic symbol. No, it's not a yonic symbol. An am it's it's a it's an amniotic sac. So it's a feminine symbol. But um, this is something that's so curious. It's like, are do, do the things have a gender? And if they do have a gender, are is it female? Is it trying to reproduce? I don't. I don't think so. I think it's very clearly an asexual organism that reproduces. Look. Like cell life, it reproduces the same way cells do, where it just replicates itself and it devours other organisms and creates new just through basic mitosis. It is shown that every cell of the thing is interchangeable. 
like if you cut off the limb of a starfish, then you you just grow true starfish. Is that true about starfish? What's the point then of them mentioning that there's an amniotic sac? Well, I think the thing in the 2011 one is a, a full-on feminist symbol or, or yonic symbolism. And the idea is that you're being reabsorbed into a womb and reborn is something uh, degenerate. I mean, I guess the, the one they do the autopsy on kind of looks like a vagina. And even when, when the woman, uh, the first thing we see like change from a person, she, uh, she tells Kate that she has, knows where the key is. So they walk into this back room. And then she turns into this big disgusting thing. And then <laughs> her chest opens up in another yonic symbol. Well, you know what's neat though? The 82 movie, I don't think has these kind of symbols, unless you argue that maybe the dog in the beginning has them a little bit. But I feel like the, the 2011 one really re- leans into this. I, I did not interpret it this way at all. So I'm curious as to, because you both seem to have thought of this. So what 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 do you think that means if the... 2011 thing is a feminist symbol what what do you think that means for what the movie is saying well i don't think it's a feminist symbol i think it's a yonic symbol i don't i don't think it's really giving a stance on feminism yeah definitely not if it is i'd be interested to find out how maybe it's like that fear of reproduction could possibly fit in there like a deviant rebirth right which would make sense then why they say specifically an amniotic sac because that is like the birth sac within a woman's uh, womb and within the womb right so yeah it, it would be rebirthing it would be re- reproducing i don't know though would it be fear of vaginas then uh well no i mean there's definitely like yonic symbol is scary is there i think that's interesting as opposed to something like alien where it's phallic symbols are scary you know mm-hmm. it's the opposite rather than it impregnating you it is you are being reabsorbed and you have to be rebirthed I'm just trying to work through what this movie might be saying about gender in my head, because the main character is a woman, so if you're saying that the thing is also a feminine symbol, is what I'll say, then almost every other character is a man. The only other woman is one of the first ones to be turned into a thing that she cannot trust. Is it like... There's a a somewhat creepy line early on where Norwegians tell kate like oh if you're here too long then you don't want to be in a room full of men Mm. well my my biggest issue with this movie is that i don't think it's saying anything at all that's the issue it's like horror films always have some sort of message or some sort of commentary on like putting a mirror to um to ourselves to humanity and saying what are we scared of right now right like that's that's the whole point of these horror movies and so when studios try to take a horror movie and redo it literally this one just it was during the time that universal was like oh what titles do we have in our backlog let's like recreate them so we can make some money um but they don't do it with like they don't adapt it with a sense of like oh how do we put a mirror up to the to society right now what what should we say right now with this horror film no they just go how do we get people's butts in the seats how do we make this the biggest thrill during the summer i mean i don't know when the fuck this came out but it, 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 there's no point to this movie other than to make money, and it pisses me off. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Like, we can talk about how they've screwed over the effects all day, but I think it goes even deeper than that. That it, it's a just like the thing is a shallow imitation of the people that it assimilates, this movie is a shallow imitation of the 82 version. I think that's fair. It also, the script was reworked like significantly. Uh, initially, there were no women in the script, they rewrote a woman in the script. Uh, and again, I don't think it's wrong if they put a woman in the script, but I don't like how they portrayed her. I mean, she's just like straight up Supergirl. Oh, she has no character. Yeah, it has nothing to do with her womanhood. She's just... Mary Elizabeth Winston is an amazing actor. It it They completely remove the who do you trust angle, aside from just surface level tension. In the yes. 82 version, McGrady isn't particularly deep, but what's interesting is that he's never certain, and neither are we, that he's handling this correctly. He's smart. He doesn't know much about the creature, though. He doesn't know what to do in this situation. He is making logical guesses about how to handle it, but everyone is on their own. He makes mistakes. A lot of his tactics are just amplifying the fear-mongering, amplifying the distrust. He kills an innocent guy. People are as scared of him as he is of them. And then on the other hand, you have Kate Lloyd. She knows exactly what to do and exactly how to handle everything. Every idea she has, she has backup plans. Everything she says is correct. The other crew members just 
listen to her. They have very minimal hesitation. And they, like, hint that stuff. Like, when she isolates the people who don't have feelings, she's like, I don't know if you're a thing, but you could be. She isolates them. And there's, like, a moment of them being like, oh, you, you shouldn't be doing this. I'm not a thing. Why don't you trust me? And they don't do anything with it. As soon as someone else is revealed as the thing, they're like, oh, wait, this is more important now. And they just drop all of that tension that they've been barely building. Yeah. And it's interesting because they, they, at the very beginning, when she like first says something while they're at the alien autopsy, and then the, the scientist pulls her aside and says, do not question my authority in front of these men again. And then she like it doesn't it i mean obviously it does happen but there's there's none of that tension that was right there in that room between those two characters of like oh they're going to be fighting for authority throughout this entire movie that's never addressed and her as a woman her as an american her as like a scientist and not an experienced scientist or not the person that's been there the whole time like all these other men like that's not it's not pushed to where it really could go no that's a great example and I think if they played with that dynamic more, they would have needed some of the other characters to actually side with the scientist maybe once. Yeah. That would have been so interesting. It would have been. Another reason why I think the tension in this movie was flubbed was because it starts out with them already knowing something's going on. And then they have mm. to go recruit her and bring her from the outside. And I'm mm -hmm. like, if they're bringing her from the outside, I mean, is this guy really not going to mention, hey, by the way, we found some weird shit. Intern, tell somebody where we are and some weird shit went on. No, it's just <laughs> like, how do they isolate this when it starts when it's already outside? So as an audience member going into this movie, we all know that the thing is capable of assimilating people and looking like people, but the characters don't know that. She has seen in the autopsy that there is something that they think is actually just the dead guy, but it's, I, I, I mean, I think it's the thing uh, creating its own assimilated version of him, but they think it's just the dead corpse. And then she like sees some fillings in the bathroom and she's immediately like, oh, the thing can imitate people. And not only can it imitate people, but it can learn our language and act exactly like us and completely impersonate a person so that we wouldn't even know that they're not the thing. We know that's true, but she doesn't. That's such a leap in logic. It's such a bad script. All three movies deal with us versus an enemy that assimilates other beings, whether they're plants or your friends or enemies. And I think it can be argued that the 1951 version is, is an allegory for the problems of communism. I'm not positive that can be said of the 82 or the 2011 version. What do you guys think? I agree with you. Uh, I mean, I think pretty much any 1950s sci-fi movie out of America is probably dealing with communism in some <laughs> way. Fair. I don't think this one does it as well as Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Blob, but it definitely is. There is this threat. And, oh, some people want to make nice with the threat, but it's just going to kill them, so we shouldn't do that. Like I said, I think it's a lot of military propaganda, and that really ties into the Cold War and the Red Scare. Devin, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that completely. There's definitely communism undertones in the 1951 one. Um, I was questioning it for the 82. I was trying to find what they could possibly be talking about in the 1982 one. Because it did happen after Vietnam, and I was hoping that was going to be a little more involved in that movie. But I think um, I think there's some semblance of Palmer maybe possibly being a vet, but they don't really address that. They don't really talk about it. I don't know. Do you guys? Did you guys come out of the '82 one thinking it was about a very specific thing during that time? Uh, I I I have a lot of reason to think it's not about communism. Whereas the 51 version, um, the fear is plants. This kind of like mindless, you know, one thing can be replaced by the other machine. And that's usually the guise in which they describe communism in these type of movies. But I don't even know if we can say that the thing is a single entity. It seems like mm -hmm. it's, it's almost critiquing consumerism more than anything else in like neoliberal politics. Because you start off as one organism. But as Norris, like even the head detaches itself from the body and becomes its own separate entity based on consumption. And when it's scurrying mm -hmm. away, like Palmer turns is like, you got to be fucking kidding me, which is another great line of the movie. And uh, they, they burn it. But then we find out Palmer is one of the things. And uh, yeah, I, it's the idea of like consumption that I think is being attacked more. I don't I don't know. 
Palmer as as a vet is really interesting because he really plays into, I guess, the stereotypes or the tropes of what a vet would be like, this like pot smoking anti-establishment type. Alien conspiracy theorist. I hadn't at all considered Palmer as a vet, but Carpenter said that he intentionally wanted the thing to be kind of a vague symbol so that you can interpret it however you want. So I don't think there really is a right or wrong answer here, unless you say it's a symbol for like Jewish space lasers or something, that, that would definitely be wrong. But I think looking at the 82 version from a communist metaphor, knowing how prevalent that was during both the original and during the 82 one is actually really interesting because yes, it does assimilate people. It does turn them into itself or it imitates them or whatever. But like you were saying, Rob, I don't think the thing is a hive mind. I think that each individual part of it really does act separately. Even its individual cells can all become a thing right. themselves. It is actually, it it think it thinks that it's a that it acts as one, but it really is extremely individualistic, and it's actually the crew members who need to put aside their individuality and work for the betterment of the entire world. They wind up sacrificing themselves by blowing this thing up to save the world. So they're almost acting more like communists than the thing is. <laughs> That's so interesting, yeah. I don't know if it's, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's pro-Marxism or communism or anything, but I would say that uh, there is this no. idea of human, humanitarianism against um, just just pure competition because the yeah. thing is that in competition with itself, even the blood is in competition with the host because if it, if it were a hive mind, given I, I don't know why the blood wouldn't create a few brain cells in it since it can just make anything to just get like a telepathic message which telepathy is not uh investigated at all in the 82 in any of the movies actually where it is prevalent in the story there's this idea that it's this hive mind that can <laughs> communicate with itself through telepathy that is not touched <laughs> upon in any of the movies i think it's if anything it's more if, if you look at it through this lens, which again, I don't think is the only lens you can view it through, it's a different kind of critique of communism, that there are a lot of communist critiques that critique them for being super for the community and like, oh, you have no individuality. And this one is saying, but that's a lie. Like, even if you're a communist, you still have individuality. You're just denying it. That's interesting. See, I, I would argue I don't think it's a communist allegory. I don't think there's right or wrong here. No, and I, I think it's definitely an interesting thing to to hear you guys talk about. Yeah. Do, do you think the 2011 seemed to be gutted and changed so much that it, it doesn't seem like it has any clear uh, political stance? No. I have no idea what that movie is supposed to be about. I want to ask you guys if you like it, but now it's time for my favorite part of the show, and that is Bone Reviews. So the way this section works is we review the movie based on the Roger Ebert standard of four bones, which is uh, you have from zero bones to four bones with bones and a half in between. Uh, zero bone means it's hardly a movie four bones is an absolute masterpiece so we're going to go in order starting with Devin this week all right i'll start with the thing from another world um this one is surprisingly my favorite uh i did not think i would come out of this as that so i'm going to give it three bones i really really liked this one uh, it spoke to me uh the thing 1982 um i do really love and I think is a is a masterpiece, but I'm only going to give it two and a half. I don't know. It just didn't wow me as much this time. I know that's going to that's going to uh, hurt a few people. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and then the thing from 2011, I, I hated. Um, really? I'll, I'll, I'll give it a half because they cast Joel Egerton. And I was going to say also Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but. They don't use her abilities to to the best of their advantage. So I'll give it a half for Joel. Wow. Okay. Uh, I forgot uh, Joel Egerton was in this. So we should have mentioned that. He's pretty cool. I know. <laughs> David, what do you think of these movies? Think for Another World, 1951. I will give two and a half stars. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I do agree that it can be a bit slow. I, I think it, it it's a bit more dated than some of its contemporaries. Um, but I, I still really like it. It, it, it. It's fun. It's it's a nice time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I like it. And then the 82 version. 
I mean, we've talked about this a lot at this point. Uh, everyone seems to think it's like the greatest horror movie of all time. I just plain don't understand that. But I do think it's really great. I will give it three bones. The, the, the interchangeable characters drag it down a lot, even though it does do... Even though the characters are still more interesting than they are in the 2011 version, which I'm only going to give a bone and a half, because it, it's fine. Not really, but... It held my attention. I like the general idea of the monster designs, although I think that the, the details of them could have used a bit more work. I, I I like in the 82 version how it references specific animals and there are rules to it. And in the 11 version, that's just not there. It's just like, oh, more tentacles, more teeth. It looks like a fleshy venom, and I, <laughs> that's kind of boring. It's, it, it's still just not a good movie, and the CGI makes it even worse. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to disagree with both of you and uh, not, not a whole lot, but I am going to disagree with both of you. I'm not surprised. Um, I, I have the opposite scores of Devin pretty much. So starting with the 1952, uh, I'm going to, I'm like on the cusp of between two bones and a bone and a half, two bones being okay, a two and a half being uh, good. I guess I'm going to go two and a half. I do like this movie and particularly for that just scene where they throw the gasoline on him and light him on fire. That is just so cool. Um, but it's so corny. I'm changing. It. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go two bones. This movie gets two bones. Oh, it's man. okay. Uh, 1982, uh, four bones. I think this is one of the best movies ever made. It is awesome. I couldn't agree with David Moore. I think the characters make the movie better. I think there's so many like little subtleties. The only two parts I don't really like are, are when Bennings gets killed. I think that the blood's too bright. And then the thing at the very end, it turns into like a T-Rex. I'm like, yeah, whatever. But it's still cool. Uh, and then for the 2011, I I want to hate this movie, but I like it. I, I'm going to give it two and a half. I think it's a good movie. I think it's like, it could have been a lot better. I think there's a lot of things wrong with it. And it could have been a lot better. But every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, this movie sucks. It did all these things wrong. But then I always find myself having a good time. I've seen this like three or four times too. So what do you like about it? Because we, we've been shitting on it all day. What do you like? Defend it. Well, uh, surprisingly, I, I think the acting is better in the 2011 than the 82, but the script's worse. Huh. The script is a lot worse, and the lines hmm. they say are stupider, but I think the acting is better. I really like the the actors in it. Um, I think there are just really cool scenes. I'm like, you know, when the thing pops out, I'm like, oh, it looks fake, but then it actually starts doing shit. I'm like, that's actually really cool. You know, when the arm splits hmm. apart and it sucks the guy's face off. Like, that's just so disgusting. Um, at the end, I think they torch a guy by accident who they didn't mean to torch. Like, that's cool. It's like stupid, but it's just it's just kind of engaging. I get it, man. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up episode three, Who Goes There? Once again, I'm Rob Basercia, and joining me here are Devin Shepard with David B. Jacobs, and we are Cadaver Dogs. See you next time. cadaver dogs will be discussing the 1976 the town that dreaded sundown and the classic 1979 the amityville horror be sure to watch these films before listening to the next episode but if you don't we're not going to hold you to it and as you watch tweet us out at cadaver dogs pod and let us know your thoughts we may even shout you out on the episode bye